0: Danny Duran, and this is the Infinite Jigsaw Podcast, a place for honest conversation, discovery, and with a genuine incentive to improve sense making. Well, in today's episode of the Wonder of Wonderful Faith series, I am very pleased to be joined by Will Pearson G. Will enjoyed a full career in the army serving all over the world as an infantry officer in the Coldstream Guards before leaving to join his brother's printing company, at which he spent several enjoyable years. But during this time, he started to go to a newly planted church, which offered him a new experience of an Anglican church pulsating the life and growing in size and depth. Will became more and more involved in the exciting mission of the church and began to sense that ordination might be what God wanted him to pursue. And years later, he is now rector of the vibrant Buckingham Parish Church. Will, welcome to the Infinite Jigsaw.
1: Great. Great to be
0: here. It's good to talk to you now. Before we go on with the podcast, you have a very interesting backstory prior to becoming a church leader. So let me ask you, firstly, if you would tell us something about where you grew up and did your schooling and what then led you into a career in the forces.
1: Yeah, so I was born and bred in London. Uh, My father died when I was very young, so I don't really have any memories of him. And my mother, um, I think it'd be fair to say, you know, struggled quite a bit. Uh, I was very blessed in that I went to a private school in London called Westminster School, Mm. uh, having been to a a boarding prep school in in, in the countryside uh, before that. And, um, yeah, I did a lot of rowing at Westminster. And without a father figure at home, um, I really lacked discipline and um, could have easily gone off the rails there, um, getting involved Mm. in stuff I shouldn't have been involved with and definitely didn't work as hard as I should have done. Um, and I think, um, you know, age 17, when I left, having done A-levels, just the thought of more academic work at university filled me with complete dread. I had no idea what to do. I had no father figure in my life to advise me. And it was just a, a chat with a friend who. And I asked him, you know, well, what are you doing now? He said, oh, I'm joining the army. I said, that sounds fun. You know, <laughs> what are you joining? Is said, a regiment called the Coldstream Guards. I said, oh, I think I'll, I think I'll join that too. I had I was <laughs> totally naive, but um, there there we go. And um, I kind of never looked back.
0: Oh, so it says um, in your bio that you you had the fortune to sort of move all over the world with the Coldstream Guards. Um, and I did catch a video of you in Hong Kong in the mid '80s. Were you there for the handing over of, of Hong Kong?
1: No, I wasn't. Um, I left Hong Kong in 1987. But the, the, you know, the army was the father figure I never had, right. and um, it gave me discipline, structure, goals to aim for, and I, I absolutely loved it. It was. Yeah, I mean, apart from all the international travel, I mean, I I was in the army, I guess you might say in the good old days before, you know, there weren't lots and lots of casualties in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. But we had Northern Ireland um, where I went three times and uh, it was it was the most marvellous environment uh, as a young man to grow up in uh, giving me so many things that I'd missed out on with my father's death.
0: Yeah, yeah, I I can well imagine. Um, well, before we move on um, to talk about Christianity and, and faith, I know that you have experienced a, another life-defining event and, and a tragic one. Would you please tell us what happened in 1996 and and how perhaps that links into your calling to ordination?
1: Yeah, of course. So I was um I was doing well in the army, uh, and I had passed my promotion exams, and I was. At what's called the army staff college which is where the sort of the the high flyers go and um at that point in history it was at camberley in surrey and i was um sort of weekly boarding uh, i lived down on the edge of salisbury plain and a little village called hatesbury where my wife and two children uh, were living and i used to you know i used to come back on a wednesday afternoon when everyone else was playing sports but um but, but otherwise you know the rest of the week i was i was up at um up at Camberley. And then one day I was called in and um, this is kind of etched into my memory. Mm. Um, and my colonel just said to me, I've got some dreadful news. I'm afraid there's been an accident. And um, your wife and son have been killed. And I, I, I just I think I screamed. Mm. No, it can't be true and then i suddenly uh, you know i suddenly remembered there was my daughter as well i said you know what about eleanor and he said she's fine and yeah so that was uh that was devastating we were incredibly happily married and um i was taken down to identify their bodies and um they'd had a head-on collision with an articulated lorry carrying 40 tons of granite rock and you can imagine what what they looked like and um yeah so my wife was on a you know on a normal kind of gurney and my son was on what was like one of those little old-fashioned tea trolleys Uh, he was just Mm -hmm. two years old and i looked up on the wall and there was this little cross and you know i was a kind of a nominal christian you know i used to pray when the chips were down Mm -hmm. um but otherwise it was you know, my faith was like an emergency parachute, really, um, which you hope never to have to deploy. And anyway, something inside me just like a little penny dropped. And I realised that that simple cross on the wall of the Salisbury Hospital mortuary um, became more than just a, a, a Christian logo, but actually became a sign of hope for me. And I looked down at these battered remains and I just thought, they can't be there. They've got to be somewhere else. These two people were so full of life. There has to be life after death. And I I was like on a mission to find out about the claims of the Christian faith. And, you know, some people turn in all sorts of different directions when confronted with a disaster like that. A lot of people will turn away from God. I think mm. God chose me to turn towards him and so I, I looked at the Bible for answers, not literally reading it, but but through speaking to my local parish priest and other people of faith. And it was a long it was a long process. You know, I did mass physics and chemistry at school. You know, I, I need evidence. I've got a bit of a scientific brain. Um, yeah. But eventually it all made sense to me and and, and I became a Christian.
0: Well, thank you for. For telling us about that um it's it's an experience that thank god not many people have and i i actually share the experience with you i had a close relative that died very suddenly in a car crash in the late 80s and um yes it's a, a life-defining um event yeah. but thank you um okay so the driving force behind this series which i've been told the wonder of wonderful faith, is my sense of a re-emerging curiosity among many people for Christian faith and the teachings in the Bible. But that curiosity does have a caveat, as all curiosities do, which is the sense or a sense of doubt and unsurety. So I think that if the church is to successfully kind of engage with um, the curious crowd, let's call them the curious crowd, then it must accept the accompanying doubts and find a way you know find the words to overcome and convert doubt into faith now yeah. this is a difficult and and a delicate task but if it isn't undertaken then let's face it dwindling congregations will continue their downward trajectory so will a couple of questions on the heel of that thought firstly do you think can church leaders recognize and maybe even seek out and engage with this curious crowd do they have the wherewithal and secondly is it okay to be secretly unsure of your faith and to not completely understand uh, total commitment to some of the more challenging um or dare i say dubious claims in the bible can a person qualify as a christian whilst experiencing doubt
1: yeah gosh two two good questions i mean in answer to the first one there's no doubt that we should be reaching out um to the curious crowd i mean one of the big challenges i've had in parish ministry is there are these huge expectations placed on you by the believers you know they want their service how they like it to sing the music they like singing etc etc and i've always been saying listen i love you but it's not about you it's about the lost sheep and then you know you explain the parable of the lost sheep and Uh, The way uh, the shepherd leaves the ninety nine sheep, some might say that's a bit that's a bit dangerous and a bit risky leaving the ninety nine sheep on the hillside to go after the one lost one. But that's what this parable is all about. You go after the lost sheep. And there's huge celebrating in heaven when when that, you know, when that one sinner repents and comes to faith in Christ. So, of course, we should all be aiming for the curious crowd and we should be um, with great zeal thinking up new and innovative ways of trying to engage with this crowd so you know whether it's by you know social media or events or whatever it is it it, it's absolutely crucial you know they're the people we should be aiming for the people who are disinterested who are not curious in a way they are lost causes because nothing is gonna really make them change their mind um Mm yeah and and on to the um just remind me that the 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 second question
0: Uh, i wanted to to know if it's secretly kind of okay to be unsure of your faith and not and not understand that total commitment
1: yeah um this is really this is really interesting because justin welby the archbishop of canterbury um is due to the fact that he is the archbishop of canterbury you know open to lots of sniping and, and, and attacks from from all sides. It's a it's a thankless job, which I'm sure he, he, he never really wanted. But um, something that I did see that resonated with me is he's been very open about having doubted his faith. And on the one hand, you could say, oh, isn't that lovely? He's being really vulnerable, being open and honest and, very, you know, all these other kind of slightly woke, uh, uh, you know, sensibilities. Mm. But actually, on the other side, what people want is strong leadership. And it's, uh, you know, there's a tension between the two. You know, if you want to make yourself really touchy-feely and vulnerable, oh, no, I understand, you know, I have doubts as well. That's not what a strong leader does. mm mm-hmm. And I think in times such of ours, actually, what we really are crying out for is strong leadership. So what I would say is I never, ever doubt my faith. I never for a second question whether the Bible story is true, whether Jesus really existed, did he really rise again from that? I will never doubt the key doctrines of the Christian faith. However, what is okay to do is to get angry with god to question god to ask god where are you in this mess how can you allow hundreds of people to die in a single bomb blast in a theater in ukraine you know how can you allow these dreadful dreadful things you know that is okay that is questioning issues of faith Mm. as opposed to questioning your faith itself
0: and, and talking of leadership and then kind of engaging with this curious cow, curious crowd um what about the what about the curious crowd and, and, and the journey toward faith which is replete with with um with curiosity and doubt um How would the leaders uh, approach these people before the conversion to sort of like total commitment and faith takes place? Yeah, I think. The way I
1: approach it, and I would call myself an evangelist, so I've got a real passion for showing the good news of Jesus, is that you have to tell people it's okay not to have everything sewn up. It's okay not to have all your ducks in a line. Um, it's okay to be asking questions, it's okay to put your faith into Jesus Christ, and we do this on the, you know, the the evangelistic course we use in my church is, is the Alpha course, and, you know, I say to people, it's okay to make a commitment to Jesus, even if you don't completely understand what it's all about, because everything's relative, and very few people have got answers to everything but we have to take that step of faith into the arms of our merciful judge and redeemer and say listen i want to hand over the steering wheel as it were of my life and let you take control even if i don't quite know where you're taking me and Mm -hmm. that's really what faith is all
0: about Mm. thank you that's that's quite a a pleasing, satisfying um, answer. And connected to all of this, the ultimate benefit of Christianity, um, on one interview, I think you're on GB News, you described Christianity as the antidote to hopelessness. But having a moment ago sort of just explored the importance of believing with a whole heart in in Jesus and in his teachings, I wonder what, what do you think the constituent ingredients to the antidote are? I mean, how does one unlock the true potency of, of Christianity? I mean, is it faith? Is it prayer and a personal dialogue with God and Jesus? Is it a routine of behaviour, routine of thought? What do you think, Will? Yeah,
1: I think it's it's Jesus. Um, it is the person of Jesus, and I think when we can. In a sense, set aside a lot of the hoops, a lot of the challenges, a lot of the dogmas and just understand on a personal level. What Jesus has done for you and me, that I think is what leads to transformation. And, you know, this is what the Pharisees and the religious teachers of Christ's day didn't get. You know, for them, it was all legalism and going through all the hoops and doing certain things and not doing other things. Uh, But, you know, when you see the tax collector just beating his chest and saying, have mercy on me, a miserable sinner. That's an example of somebody who who has understood the personhood of Jesus, the reason why he came, his inestimable love for us miserable sinners even though we have absolutely no right to be loved by him because of the mess in our lives you know when you understand that um then i think everything else falls into place it's that prodigal son that parable which really should be called not the prodigal son but the loving father you know that that that's that wayward younger son basically said to his father, listen, I don't care about you. I want all the money that I was going to get when you die. Give it to me now and then just get out of my life. I'm going to get out of your life. I mean, nothing could be more hurtful to the father. And yet he gives him his inheritance. And of course, you know, when it all goes, the money's all spent. And the guy comes to his senses and comes back just wanting to be a hired slave. The father's there with his arms outstretched. He doesn't want the sun to work for him. He just wants the son in his arms. And you know, that's what Jesus did with his arms outstretched on the cross, welcoming us home. That's all he wants is you and me. Are
0: you okay? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> um well we've spoken about faith there and and hope also. So let's complete that particular trinity. And I'll ask you about the remaining theological virtue, which is charity. Now, this is always quite a tricky one f- for me, because to my mind, charity, uh, which can be translated as being love, so I learn, can be pointed in more or less useful directions. Now, last summer, I joined a local group whose main focus is charity fundraising. And to a person, I got the sense that they were very well-meaning people, you know, driven to help others. But although they all resided in the same town, a town that is quite salubrious in its centre, but has an outskirt, which is actually reported to be one of the most deprived areas in the district. And uh, they call it a child poverty black spot. Yet the group's charity wasn't pointed a mere kind of mile away but thousands of miles across land and ocean and I couldn't help but wonder why we have such a fascination with giving and caring for uh, societies remote to ourselves in culture remote in language and custom when evidence of hardship and distress is actually on our on our doorstep so will what, what do you think should charity start at home or what
1: um I mean this is a dilemma that lots of um churches have to handle um my previous church um was founded by missionaries it was a relatively young church established 120 years ago by missionaries and a huge proportion of the church's tithe went abroad um when i then moved to my current church and was in char- you know in charge of this church um i felt that the there was the other end was where we needed to aim for so we have heavily invested in trying to be christ's hands and feet in the community we also Mm -hmm. um i I guess probably a third of our giving does go abroad we support uh, a church in baghdad um, and three organizations in india um but if we are to have a right within the community and I, I, I my context is a is a market town of about 18,000 people i'm the only anglican church in the town which gives me a, a lot of opportunities so for example you know i take an annual civic service for the mayor and you, you know you get the lord lieutenant and all these other people with lots of chains around their necks coming <laughs> yeah you no know, if we're to have a right to speak into the public space you you need to earn that because 50 years ago my predecessor would have had that right by default because he was the rector and people used to listen to him now because of all the abuse scandals in the church um, and the general decline of the church the secularization of society we mm-hmm. no longer have that right anymore it's like why should we listen to a vicar uh, and the reason why i think i do have the privileges that i enjoy here in buckingham is because if the church disappeared overnight we would be really missed and i'm not talking about by our congregations, who we get about 300 between 300 and 400 through the doors on a sunday wow. i'm talking about the wider town i want a church i'm sure christ wants his church to be indispensable So we've invested heavily in the food bank, um, in Christians Against Poverty courses. We have a little um, mission center in the middle of the town where people come in, you know, free coffees, all this kind of stuff. Um, So I I guess in answer to your question, it's not an either or. It has to be a both and.
0: So. I'm just trying to reconcile what I'm learning from the Gospels with this concept of the sense of charity being wider than just what's on your doorstep and being more sort of like the um, the wider brotherhood of man. Because, I mean, in the Gospel of Matthew, I learned that Jesus says, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment and the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. And as with all these Gospels, I mean, I I find them immensely interesting and and detailed, and there's a lot in there within those lines. But unless the word neighbour has been lost in translation somehow, I can't help but thinking that's someone that you see every day.
1: Well, okay. interestingly, the good Samaritan... Uh, which is the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, which what um follows on uh, fairly closely, uh, is given in answer to one of the lawyers saying, well, who is my neighbor? So, ah. yeah. So what Jesus is doing by using a Samaritan as opposed to another Jewish person being the one who was caught, you know, and beaten up by thieves mm-hmm. is he's saying he's a Samaritan. A.K.A. this could be a Muslim from Chechnya, Syria or whatever. You know, we are talking about a people who the Jews would not normally associate with at all. The Samaritans were looked down upon. They were hated by the Jews because they were seen to have been disloyal to the Jewish faith and collaborators. So, I mean, your answer really is in that parable it's not just the people you like and know in your immediate vicinity plus of course there's lots in Paul's letters where um, they take up collections to support the church in other parts of the um, of the Near East.
0: Mm. Yeah this is why um, the gospels and bible teachings just require deep inspection and a lot of a lot of talking that's why they're bible study groups I guess but nicely linked to this topic of of helping those um who are uh, around you is something that i know that you were very strong on through the lockdowns uh, having seen you on on a couple of news bulletins and that's the importance of the role of the church to provide a, a personal contact to the congregation you know to have open doors and open arms can you reflect for us on that quite recent time when churches up and down the country um shut their doors and refused to minister. I mean, how bemused were you by what took place and how easy was your decision or difficult to rail against this um, unprecedented forced closure? Do you think that God's law transcends the law of the land or ultimately or?
1: Uh, gosh, um, first of all, I was in disbelief mm. when the churches were shut. I mean, let's just step back and look at the kind of the the whole span of of history. Mm. The one institution that has stood firm in the last two thousand years it's not not the roman empire not the well i was obviously going back before the last two thousand years empires rise and fall political governments rise and fall nations rise and fall the one constant is the church and at the time where in this country we were faced with I mean, not far off an existential crisis. I mean, it was so weird. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Going back to March 2020. The one time when we needed the church as a as a kind of an unchanging reference point, like a like a lighthouse on a on a rock facing a storm 12 (laughs) gale. Yeah. The one time we needed the church to be like that. We closed the doors. And worse than that. We close the doors above and beyond what the government required of us. And I know the Archbishop of Canterbury, the House of Bishops, has apologised. You know, they've acknowledged they got that wrong. Right. It still hurts, you know, and I know we should forgive and move on. And, uh, of course, we have done that. But a lot of churches are still living with the fallout from those closures I mean, I, I was a bit of a maverick. Um, I reopened before we were allowed to. I did things that, strictly speaking, we weren't supposed to because I just thought I just had enough of this nonsense. And I took a few funerals dotted around. And the one thing people came up to me, they used to say to me, Vicar, I, this, I, I'm sure this is nothing to do with you. But I just have to tell you that I am. I am absolutely flabbergasted at how pathetic the church has been during mm. this pandemic, and I would have to say I'm I'm so sorry. I completely agree with you, but you're right. It has got nothing to do with me. Um, there was a real sense of betrayal and abandonment. Now, the other side to the coin is that whilst we were closed, um, we obviously went online. We we've got a modern although we have an ancient church building we're very techies so we we've been live streaming for two or three years already we had all the kit of course we weren't allowed to use it because the church doors were closed but we very quickly pivoted to going online in really quite a high quality way not just here's my mobile phone we're going up going on facebook live You know, it was, it was done well mm-hmm. um a lot of churches couldn't do that. And a lot of churches have had to close as a result of the number of people who left the church and have not returned. And that's a story told across the nation. We are still rebuilding. Uh, we are I think we're doing incredibly well. We're, we're, we're up to 90 percent of our pre covid attendance. But we've you know, like if you don't use muscles, they atrophy. So yeah. our kind of volunteering muscle has atrophied. So we're we're kind of limping along at the moment, desperate for more people to reengage, step up to help, you know, helping the kids groups, help on production, all that kind of stuff. But it was um it was a dark time for the church, despite the fact we delivered lots of food, parcels and all the rest of it. What we needed was to have our doors open and services of prayer to have gone on nobody i mean i know it's easy to say this with hindsight nobody would have caught anything mm. you know we've got a barn of a building it's huge uh you could self-isolate with like five meters between people you could still get 30 people into church uh but we weren't allowed to do it so uh, it was a disgraceful episode in the church of this history and we're paying the price now
0: yeah up and down the country we're paying the price and Uh, I've spoken to a good few people involved in the church and church leaders, and they 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 all report this. Um, And it makes me makes me wonder. I spoke to James Blott um, in the last episode. He's a Christian thinker and deeply involved in the church for many years. And I asked him about the strategy for um, for recruitment of of the church, and he 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 didn't really um, know if there there was a universal strategy or a central kind of thinking. And this just Puts me in mind this crisis, if you want to call that post-COVID, of um, of even more dwindling uh, congregations, non-returning congregations. If this was a business, there would be some branches like your own that have bounced back quicker and there'd be shared good practice. I just wonder if that's kind of promoted in the church. Is there anything like this?
1: Um, Not in an official Church of England way and it's one of my bugbears um i mean i i came here 12 years ago to a church that had about 80 people on a, on a good sunday and very kind of middle of the road anglican lovely lovely church people were just super nice and helpful and all the rest of it but to use the analogy of of a, of a kind of a lifeboat and a yacht club, instead of being a lifeboat out in the community scooping up the lost, it was it was a little bit more of a yacht club. Right. And I bought around, uh, you know, they appointed me on a platform for change, and my goodness me, that is what they got. <laughs> and uh, I was, was, was described early on having having ushered in a tsunami of change <laughs> um good on you and um you know that that's what strong leadership does and i appreciate not everyone's been in the army not everyone is wired uh as a strong leader but i do i do think i think you know because the church is is so desperate for 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 more ordained ministers um I'm not sure if I completely agree with with the criteria sometimes for selecting ministers. So, you know, if you're a very studious academic with a Ph.D., but with poor interpersonal skills and you're a raging introvert, they will welcome you with open arms because they love clever academic people.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: If you've got a handful of GCSEs brilliant interpersonal skills passion for saving lives for christ you will really struggle to get ordained
0: i so sad uh it is it
1: is it is sad it's beyond sad actually um this is why we have so many weird uh vicars um who shouldn't really be vicars at all they should be in some kind of teaching institution um mm-hmm. I'm being a bit mean here and I'm generalizing and um, as a bit of hyperbole. But you know, there's there's definite truth. We've all met some really weird vicars. Yeah. Um and there is good news. So HDB, the church Rev- revitalization trust, has started up something called the Peter Stream running out of St. Miletus, which um which basically is a way for those who have not got academic qualifications to get the academic reports necessary to get them through a Bishop's advisory panel. And they're doing incredible work with some really, really good young men and women and particularly people from um, ethnic minorities who've had really you know, tough upbringings, have not done well at school and have suddenly discovered, you know, in their mid-twenties that actually now they're over, you know, their drug addictions and motorbiking and hell raising and all the rest of it they can actually concentrate and they can mm. actually write an essay if they're given that nurturing environment and they're doing really well and they're being sent out already and they're planting new churches and not just in a happy clappy uh, tradition of all traditions within the c of e and um that's a cause of great um, delight i mean it, it, it's not either or It's both. And yeah, I've got to be absolutely clear about that. We need the PhDs from Oxbridge because we need theologians, but we also need the others.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I get that. And you can you can have all that as long as you get the strategy correct. And at the moment, it's just too linear. Well, we spoke about lockdowns then being a novel experience for all of us in our personal lives and for businesses. And uh, for the institutions like the church. And bearing in mind, we've just heard you recount and explain your experience. I just wanted to sort of round off this conversation of the lockdowns. What sense do you get of the tolerance of church leaders to abide by any future lockdowns? Has their tolerance met a level um, where they're not going to have that happen again?
1: I I think so. I, I think they would be Lots and lots of very careful, very precious vicars who just want to toe the line. And, you know, this is what we heard during the lockdown. All I ever got from my bishop was be safe, stay safe. Make sure you do this. Make sure you don't do that. I never once had a rallying cry to, you know, fulfill the gospel imperative. Uh, It was all health and safety. So you will get some church leaders who will fall into that category. But I reckon most of us would not, uh, you know, if we had a reoccurrence of March 2020, most of us would refuse to close our churches.
0: This is good. And that would display something that I uh, and I think you alluded to a few moments ago that I hoped I would see um, during the lockdowns. And that is heroism from church leaders, because actually, to my mind, you know, believing wholeheartedly, in Jesus and throwing your complete self um, into the work of saving people through the name of Jesus Christ is, is fairly heroic because it's, it's a difficult thing to do to commit on that level. The person looking from out to in, it, it's fairly heroic to me. So I just hope that should we be faced with more lockdowns, then we would experience some heroism. Amen. Yeah. So now, I'd like to ask you a question that I put to my last guest, James uh, Blot. As I said, this guy for many years was deeply involved in the church, and he's got a, an excellent blog called The Reflective Preacher. I really recommend listeners check out the podcast and his blog. But I wanted to explore what is probably the most important facility of any religion, and that's the sermon, because isn't it the spoken word, and the communication, and and then the explanation of any concept that actually... Uh, you might say fertilizes the imagination and sets seed for an intellectual and a spiritual commitment. So I I told James that as a young lad, I listened to the local vicar whose name was Father Philip and he he was an impossibly tall man, very gentle man uh, in our school assembly and also sometimes in the local church. And although I guess my comprehension of religious concepts wasn't great and I was only a young lad, to be honest, it all seemed a bit dry will and a bit uninspiring so what's your take on the facility of the sermon and what do you think makes an engaging sermon
1: the sermon is for me as a as an evangelical um holy communion aside you know the high point of the service um you know roman says how people are supposed to believe if they've not heard heard the word how how are people supposed to hear the word if no one's going to preach it to them Um, the Ethiopian eunuch, um, having had um, the scroll of Isaiah explained to him, um, the penny drops and he says, you know, what's to stop me from being baptized now? There's some water over there. He gets baptized, you know, that there's so much in the Bible uh, uh, about teaching the word of God. And of course, we all know the Bible is quite dry uh, and dusty in, in places. You know, I always joke with new christians you know for goodness sakes when you start reading the bible don't start in leviticus <laughs> um you know start with the gospel of mark which is quite racy and short and you can read it in 50 minutes or whatever um so we need gifted communicators that's that's what you need you need to have a gift for communication and i'm going to be controversial here but Even if you have the most beautifully crafted talk, if you deliver it in a boring, monotone manner Mm. with no eye contact, it's as good as dead in the water. So uh, preaching, when I train curates, that's the area I focus on most, because as far as I'm concerned, if you can't preach, on a Sunday or another context you might as well just pack up and go home you need to be able to explain the word of God so you need to be a little bit of a theologian to understand it but you know we've all got loads of good commentaries to help and you need to be able to craft a good sermon in in an engaging way Uh, hold people's attention you need to win the win the crowd over, you know, being winsome. Perhaps um, I'm not a great fan of, you know, telling jokes, but certainly amusing stories and talking of stories. We need to do what Jesus did, which is to teach in parables, in stories. So, you know, every point I try and make, I try and illustrate with a story or a a metaphor. So I was preaching on the prodigal son and uh, the way the father ran towards the son, uh, which, in that in that um society was something very ungainly you know if you were a a rich man with plenty of land you would never allow people to see you running and i just remind i just used a little story of when when i left my son in the apple store in milton Keynes by mistake and i got back to the car and my wife said where's theo and my heart just stopped and i ran with all these thoughts running through my head you know you know unless i get there quickly somebody could steal my son and take him away you know Mm. i've never covered 800 meters so fast in my life you know and that really resonated with people and when i you know when i described scooping my son up and holding him in my arms and you know what that meant to me as the father you know people could really identify with that Mm. so yeah i mean there's, you know, been so many books written about preaching. I was very blessed at Theological College. I had Michael Green, who was one of the heroes of the faith, who was the most incredible preacher. And um, I remember when he died, just saying, Lord, just rather like Elisha and Elijah, please may I have a portion of his anointing. And so I love preaching. I don't find it easy to prepare a talk. Sometimes it's like getting blood out of a stone. But I love communicating gospel uh, and it is terribly, terribly important to do well.
0: And what do you think about reconciling the difference between um, preaching to children and adults?
1: Well, uh, <laughs> this is a, like an ever ending discussion. You know, <laughs> can one do a good all age talk? I remember someone saying, of course you can, of course you can. You know, I'll I'll show you how. So I gave them the floor one Sunday. And the first thing they did was give out bits of paper and coloured pencils so the little ones could go to the back. (laughs) And I said, that's cheating. You said you weren't going to engage everybody. Well, I mean, you can't you can't really engage the very small one. You know, so it's a really hard square to circle. I'm not saying it's impossible. And what I try and do is I you've got to have a target audience, you know, who are you really, really aiming at? Because if you say, oh, I'm aiming to the parents of all these kids, then, you know, a kiddies talk isn't really going to work. However, I've never heard an adult complain about a good children's talk being too easy to understand. You know, Mm -hmm. one of the reasons I came to faith was a children's talk on the parable of the talents and perhaps it doesn't say very much my intellect but it really spoke to me (laughs) in a very different way than it had done when i'd previously read the passage probably on many occasions so uh, i would try i try and do a little bit at different ages uh and explain concepts i'll 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 kind of come up and i'll say Um, grown-ups you know exactly what i'm talking about here you know we're talking about justification by faith but kids what this grown-up term is all about is actually we don't have to do anything for jesus to love us you know we just have to invite him into our life so you can you can kind of go down parallel tracks but it does get you know it's it's a it's a really tough ask we do one all-age service a month, and we're always questioning whether it's worth doing, um, and whether perhaps we should just do all-age services, you know, on on red-letter days. Um, but anyway, that's that's where we are at the moment.
0: Yeah, it seems like a difficult one, and uh, and to hold in mind that um, perhaps today's Sunday school or uh, tomorrow's cohort of theologians or, yeah. or or curates or, or, or whatever um so we've covered some really good ground here it, you know engaging with a curious crowd the antidote to hopelessness charity as a virtue uh, tolerance or or intolerance for lockdowns in the sermon but um penultimately let's try to gather all these thoughts together in summary because my own experience and exploration of christianity over this series has so far been really rewarding, uh, both intellectually and spiritually. And I've gotten nothing but good vibes from all my guests, nonetheless for their faith and dedication, but also actually their sense-making agility when it comes to questioning the management of the Church of England. And, and it's that uh, kind of interior critique that's something that I'm pleased to learn that sits apart from uh, their personal responsibility as a vicar with a congregation to minister, and in some pleasing way, all these conversations, however it's kind of metaphysical they, they might have strayed, for me they're beginning to coalesce around central Christian themes that seem to be the best interpretation of the human condition that I can I can find. So we'll ultimately, despite everything, in the long run, does a Christian way of life simply make good sense
1: without doubt without doubt i mean i i could sit on here for another 10 hours telling you (laughs) what a difference uh being a christian has has made to my life um i mean apart from being able to make sense of the death of my um son and my wife um having met others for whom a tragedy like that has uh, caused immeasurable i would say eternal damage to them mm. they've never ever been able to find any sense of peace in in a in a, in a tragedy mm. i i have been able to and i am completely at peace about that you know i've ranted at god why did you take them Um, how does a loving god allow bad things to happen to good people i've you know i've had all these rants with him and i i understand in my way that's appropriate to my my intellect i can make sense of the question of a, a good god and evil um But in in my everyday life, being able to pray to God, to be able to hand things over, to be able to say to myself, God is sovereign. He is in charge. I know it doesn't make sense at the moment, but it's all going to be okay. And that wonderful promise in Romans 8, 28, you know, for God, uh, God turns all things uh, for those who are in Christ Jesus to the good, Um, knowing that even the rubbish in my life, God can redeem and turn round. And I know I'll be able to look back and think, right, I can see, I can kind of see what God was up to there and understand why he permitted that to happen. So I can't imagine living without a Christian faith.
0: Thank you. Thanks very much. Um, Well, lastly, I'd like to ask you the question that I'm asking to all the guests on this series, and it's a kind of collection of thoughts on the topic, because every answer I get seems to be quite different. What does the enlightenment mean to you? Gosh, the enlightenment.
1: Well, there was a lot of good and a lot of bad came out of that. Um, uh, (laughs) I'm not 100% sure what the, I mean, I think there was a lot of good But as the Enlightenment led inexorably towards our very God-free, secular environment that we find ourselves in at the moment, Mm. I would say I'm probably not a massive fan of the Enlightenment, although it also did winnow some of the very negative and destructive aspects of organized religion and i guess was fertile ground for people to really have to question their faith which um you know it's a good thing to have to question your faith um to make sure you are firm in it so um lots of good and lots of bad i guess is my answer
0: well thank you really very much for coming on the podcast will um where can people look up your church online because i know you've got big online presence
1: yeah it's um bp as in as in the petrol station bpchurch.uk right.
0: okay excellent well that's it for another episode of the jigsaw podcast um well thank you very much again and i hope to speak to you again another My time pleasure. okay cheers